Welcome to the Popular Pig Podcast, a convenient place where you can stay up to date on what's popular in this wine industry. By listening to Popular Pig, you will receive invaluable information on the latest trends, news, and research from various experts who guide the global pork industry. Popular Pig is brought to you by SwineTech, the award-winning creators of SmartGuard and PigFlow. To learn how PigFlow can help you streamline your workforce and reduce piglet and sow deaths, visit swinetechnologies.com. Popular Pig is also made possible by Johnsonville Foods, Swine Robotics, SwineWeb.com, and Innovative Heating, the manufacturers of Hoghearth. Welcome to the Popular Pig Podcast. My name's Matthew Rhoda, your host for today's episode. Today, we're going to ask an important question. Can animal agriculture save the planet? Joining us is Mr. Jack Bobo. How are you doing today, Jack? I'm doing great. Thank you for joining us in the Popular Pig Podcast. I'm excited to talk through and dig a little deeper into what you talked about at NPIC just this last week. If you could start off by introducing yourself and your background and what got you to NPIC. (laughs) Sure, thanks. It's really great to be on the program. So I am the CEO of Futurity, which is a food foresight company. I work with food tech startups and big food brands, helping them to understand what does the future of food look like, where are consumer trends and attitudes going, and how do organizations get ahead of trends so they don't get run over by them. Uh, In terms of my background, I spent 13 years at the U.S. Department of State working on global food policy, covered food policy in Africa for a few years, then Asia and Europe. I ran our global biotechnology program for a while. And then my last few years, my only job was giving speeches. So I had an unlimited travel budget, could travel anywhere in the world and just talk about the future of food, the role of science, and how to better communicate to the public. So it was a really great job. but I did leave that and I went to a, a large biotechnology company called Intrexon, which many people have not heard of, but it was the parent company for the non-browning Arctic apples, the genetically engineered salmon, transova genetics, uh, all things controversial. So uh, it was an interesting time and I was head of communications and global policy for that company and left about two years ago to start my own consulting firm. That sounds like a lot of fun. It is. So in agriculture, I kind of want to start off where you started off last week, which is in agriculture, are we framing questions the right way? Well, I think there are a lot of problems in how it's currently being framed. You know, there there are big impacts from agriculture. I mean, you know, it's a really big, important thing that we do in terms of land, 40 or 50% of all the land on earth that could be devoted to agriculture is being devoted to ag today top user of water, impacts on deforestation. So those are all real and true things. But when you talk about them, you use today as the baseline. So you frame the problem that needs to be solved and agriculture is that problem that sounds like it needs to be solved. But if you were to frame it in a very different way, if you were to look at not today as the baseline, but let's use 1960 as the baseline, Well, if we were farming today the way we farmed in 1960 without all these innovations and new technologies and other things, we would need 1 billion additional hectares of agricultural land to feed the population we have. And if we did that, we'd have to cut down more than a quarter of all the forest on the planet in order to do that. So what people sometimes miss is that agriculture can be the single biggest driver of deforestation and it can be the greatest savior of forests. 
It's just that we don't notice the forests that didn't get cut down. You just notice the ones that did. Absolutely. That's a great way of putting it. I know you dove into how big the footprint of agriculture it is, but how big all the efforts that have gone into agriculture are to help reduce that footprint as well. Um, when we look at our food system, is it broken? Where are we right now? Yeah, you know, I hear that all the time and it kind of drives me crazy. You know, our food system is broken. And, and there are reasons why people think that, you know, we already talked about the impact on the environment. And, you know, we have 760 million people that are going to go to bed tonight hungry. And that, you know, seems unacceptable in the world we have today. But again, if you look at where we came from instead of where we are, the picture looks quite different. Um, hunger today, about 7% of people on the planet will go to bed hungry, way too many. But 50 or 60 years ago, a third of all the people on the planet would have gone to bed hungry. And so it's not that things are bad and getting worse, which is what most consumers think. Things are actually good and getting better, but not fast enough. And so it, we need to think about, you know, should we be framing farmers as the problem to be solved or farmers as the solution to the problem? And if we take a historic perspective, things are wildly better today in terms of um, the footprint of agriculture or how we produce food than they ever have been. And we need to acknowledge that. So what do consumers think about sustainability in agriculture? Well, it's not surprising. Sustainability, you know, is, is a tough thing to define. And so from a consumer's perspective, they kind of think, well, if you use less water and you use less fertilizer and pesticides and insecticides and all those things, you must be a better farmer, you know, because there's less impact on the land, less eutrophication of waterways and, you know, your non-target pests and all of those things. And so it kind of makes sense because you have a softer impact on a piece of land that sounds like sustainability. But for many large producers or people who sort of live and breathe agriculture, they think, well, the more intensively I can farm my land, the less land we need. And obviously that's true because of what we talked about, you know, 1960 to today. But, you know, consumers don't really see that when we farm more intensively in the United States, there's less deforestation in Brazil. You know, they just see the, the farmers cutting it down for livestock and other things. And so, you know, what I talk about is the difference between local sustainability, which is really what regenerative and organic and other things are all about, and global sustainability, which is what intensive agriculture is about. And there's not a good or bad or right or wrong. It's just a continuum from local to global. And there will always be trade-offs between the two. The more gentle our footprint, the more footprints we have, the more intensive, the more local impact we have. And so, you know, the United States in many ways is blessed with the ability to absorb those negative impacts from other parts of the world. And we do that by exporting food. You know, so the water that's needed to produce the food comes, you know, is taken here in the U.S., but the food is sent someplace else. So we're exporting food and importing the environmental impacts of that food. You had, you had hit actually, and this is pretty neat, you were talking about uh, the Europe side, where Europe does a lot of great things for local sustainability, but they're exporting their carbon footprint. Can you kind of talk through that? Because that, that made me think through this in an entirely different way. 
Yeah, you know, many people, when they think about, you know, Europe versus the United States, they feel like, you know, Europe's on the right track, you know, smaller farms and, you know, more artisanal and all of those things. And, you know, many, much of that is true. The U.S. and Europe both export $150 billion of agricultural products. The U.S., though, is exporting wheat, corn, and soy, and Europe is exporting beer, wine, whiskey, and cheese. Now, don't get me wrong. I like my beer, wine, whiskey, and cheese, yeah. but it's not going to feed the world. Um, and then if you look at, you know, what are they importing? Well, the country that sends the most food to Europe is Brazil, and that's mostly soybeans. Europe imports as much as 70% of its animal feed needs, you know, depending on the time of year. And so that the land that's needed to produce soybeans for Europe is like the agricultural land of Germany. So imagine that there's an entire Germany in Brazil that's feeding Europe. Mm -hmm. And so you know, what Europe is doing is it's exporting its environmental footprint to arguably the most biodiverse country on the planet. You know, that might not be a good idea, but, you know, that's a trade-off. So the Europe's drive for more local production and in their farm to fork strategy, um, you know, they want to have 25% of their land be organic by 2030, you know, less than a decade. Well, based on Europe's own assessments of the productivity or organic under real world conditions in Europe, that would lead to an 8% reduction in pr production. I mean, that's a lot. And mm -hmm. the country that sends the most food is Brazil. So, you know, if Europe produces 8% less and somebody else has to fill that gap, you know, that could have dramatic negative impacts for the rest of the world at the same time that they're sort of improving their local sustainability. Yeah, I know based on some changes over in Germany too, they're they're making a lot of changes in the requirements of of raising animal agriculture and or animal protein. And, and a lot of that's going to probably prevent it from even taking place in Germany anymore. So yeah, where does that go and what impact does that have on where it's going? Um, when we look at sustainability, is it more of a journey than a destination? Yeah, I think, you know, often people talk about, you know, is this what sustainable agriculture looks like? And, you know, I, I like to say that sustainability is a journey, not a destination, because if you look at the farmer today, despite all of the problems we mentioned, they're just wildly better than a farmer, you know, 20 or 30 years ago. Just your average farmer today is wildly better. You know, we use 50% less water. There's 60% less erosion on the land to produce a bushel of corn. There's 35% fewer greenhouse gases. So, you can, by every measure, farmers today are just wildly better, and that's for every crop. And so they're on a sustainability journey. And 20 or 30 years from now, they will be wildly better than they are today. And so instead of telling farmers, you know, this is what you should do, you know, you're doing this wrong and this wrong and this wrong, which, you know, I, I'm sure offends a lot of people that do this every day. <laughs> what we should be doing is looking around and finding producers who are doing things a little bit better and maybe making more money as a result of it and say, hey, this is something you could be doing because the farmer today, you know, is that future farmer from, you know, 20 years ago, you know, they're doing things that nobody dreamed of 20 years ago, whether yeah. it's cover crops or low till or, you know, robotics on the farm. I mean, they're doing all these cool things. Why wouldn't they want to do more cool things that make their farm better? Obviously they would. So we just need to move from the language of should do this to the language of, hey, you could do this, which is an exciting opportunity. Nobody likes to be told what to do, but, you know, we do like to learn new stuff. So you actually, you had this great quote that you put up and it was, 
Oh, it was uh, people love innovation almost as much as they despise change. Can you describe <laughs> the graphic you showed for that? It was pretty funny. You got a lot of laughs. Yeah. So I, you know, I use what this picture from the Simpsons of, you know, the, the, the great crowd of all the people, you know, on the Simpsons, how they're, uh, you know, getting together for a photo op. And then, you know, I, that's the, you know, people love innovation, but then we switch to this picture of all of those same people with torches coming to, uh, you know, burn down some castle or something. And, and that's the problem is that, you know, sometimes we love innovation with our new smartphone or device. And sometimes we feel like change is scary and something. And there's just no place that we despise change more than in the food we eat because food brings people together with friends and family. And if you mess with my food, you're messing with my family and people don't like that. I mean, no. people will get angry when you try and come and take food off their plate or tell them what food they can eat. But we also need to change some of the things about the food we eat. You know, way too many Americans, 42% are obese, 75% of Americans are overweight or obese. So, you know, there's, there are clearly some issues with how we're, you know, producing and consuming food today that we need to be willing to talk about and be willing to address, but it's not because what the farmers are doing is bad. It's because, you know, we all want to be healthier and live longer, happier lives. So now that consumers do care more than ever before, and because it does have an impact on family and like, why does it seem like now more than ever before, we're not listening to science as consumers? Why, why does it feel like there's other forces driving things? Yeah, you know, I, I think the, the line I used is, you know, people have never cared more nor known less how their food is produced. And because they care more, they want to have a say in how that food is produced. But, you know, consumers today are largely removed from, you know, farming and rural life. And, you know, they don't really understand what it takes to put the food on their table. And so they can, the things they're asking for, more sustainability, you know, improved animal welfare, you know, those are things that, you know, I think we all want the animals to be as well, you know, protected as they can and treated. We want the land to be as, you know, treated as well as it can. Um, but there were also trade-offs to those things. You know, most consumers, you know, want cage-free hens, but they don't want to pay any more for their eggs. And so, you know, there's, there's tension because if you ask somebody, you know, do you want safer, healthier, more natural food? They're going to say, yes, yes, yes. And they're going to say, and what part of that will you pay for? Well, I just want it at the same price. Or, or the people that it's are demanding changes are, you know, they don't care how much they pay but the 95% so, of consumers who do care are not really part of the conversation. So do you think the reason that a lot of people look at this and go, I should get it at the same price is because they view it uh, from a, not from a capitalistic perspective, but mo more from like an ethical perspective. Like why should I pay more for ethical food is kind of what that conversation sounds like. Well, you know, we, we need to recognize that these sort of inconsistencies are not something that like, city consumers have, you know, we really all have those things. You know, if, if I were to ask, you know, do you want this artisanal bourbon or do you want this other, you know, a lot of us will choose, choose the Pappy Van Winkle, you know, yeah. and might even pay the $700 a bottle. Um, if you're if lucky can't to get it, it at that. Exactly. Right. <laughs> and so, you know, I have a chapter in my book about, about that. And, you know, the, 
so we're all swayed by those things, the natural and other things. So, you know, we, we sometimes think of it as them versus us, but it's also us in a different situation, you yeah. know? And, and so once we begin to recognize that the, our brain is leading us to make some bad choices that are really counter to our long-term goals, then we can kind of begin to, to work with people because it's like, yeah, I do that in this situation, you know, but how do we all become on guard? And if that was really what led me to, to write my book, Why Smart People make, make Bad Food Choices. The first third of the book is entirely about how our brains often lead us to make bad choices. You know, like you put low fat on a, you know, a bag of cookies and we think, well, if one cookie is good for me, the entire bag is going to be great. And, <laughs> you know, that impacts all of us. And that's obviously not science-based, but, you know, it's, it still influences what we do. So I did want to bring up that you do have a book out and to restate the title is why smart people make bad food choices. And in some of what you talked about, you mentioned the halo effect. Can you talk about the halo effect? Yeah. You know, the, the halo effect um, was something that really became noticeable back, you know, in the late 1970s when the dietary guidelines decided to focus on, you know, fat as the villain that was impacting American health. And companies did what really, I think, the regulators wanted them to do. As soon as they said dietary, dietary fat is the bad guy, they started offering low-fat alternatives. The problem is, you know, our brains kicked in and said, you know, just what I mentioned before, one cookie's good, a whole bag is better. And it gave us permission to eat more of the product. Now, low in fat doesn't mean low in calories, but the halo effect impacts the that kind of decision making. What it really does is it says, if something has one positive trait, we assume it has all positive traits. So if it's low in fat, it's probably low in sugar, it's probably high in nutrients, it's probably all of these other things. And so we just eat more of that product, you know, when the halo effect is there. And you see this with plant-based products, you know, today, that 95% of consumers are trying plant-based burgers for health reasons, even though there's certainly no healthier, you know, than the alternative. And most of the companies producing them wouldn't even claim that they were healthier. You know, they're doing it mostly for environmental or sustainability or ethical reasons. And yet, you know, when 95% of your consumers are buying your product for the wrong reason, you know, that that's going to be a problem at some point. So when we talk about, I'm going to shift way back to the beginning now, and we're going to go back to sustainability. How do we look at labor in a sustainable in a sustainable way? Because I mean, labor is is hard to come by, and it's getting even harder. And the competitive industries to animal agriculture or agriculture is manufacturing and fast food and retail. How does that become sustainable? Do you have any? I guess have you thought about that or talked with that with anybody? Yeah, you know, uh, labor, labor is certainly a challenge in this country, and it's, you know, becoming more complicated in other new industries. Uh, I think COVID drove some of the trends towards robotics and automation and other things. Uh, so I think, you know, five years ago, if we were talking about automation, we'd probably be talking about worried about losing labor. What are all those people going to be doing? Now, though, we're talking a little bit about where are we going to get the labor? And so that automation doesn't feel quite as threatening as it did, you know, just a few short years ago. And, you know, you know, I like to look at things from the futurist lens. And usually that means, 
not just taking a linear approach, the way things are today is how they're going to be in the future. And that's what people did with robotics. You know, they said, hey, robotics, you know, reduces labor and therefore we're going to have a shortage of work for people to do because they just kind of look at that linear line. But think about it. Here's a different way of thinking about it. Why do we produce anything in China? Low labor costs, right? It's cheaper. Exactly. Well, if we have robotics in those plants, why are the plants in China? Because all of a sudden <laughs> transportation becomes the most important component of the cost of that good. So why not have, why not bring manufacturing back to the United States if it's going to be heavily automated? Yeah. So, you know, so automation, things don't always have the impact we think they will if we just look a little bit further out. Uh, and so I think that, you know, there are just always going to be those discontinuities, though, as you transition from a world where labor is plentiful and, and cheap to a world where it's less plentiful. Well, that will just drive certain trends. Um, and, you know, maybe it drives up some wages and creates more opportunity too, though, to get higher value. You know, uh, maybe instead of having people that are low skilled, you have some people that are higher skilled at doing some of those things. People may pay more for hand-picked versus robotics. Uh, how do you turn it into a, a way of differentiating products? You know, mm -hmm. you know, how do we use blockchain to be able to identify individual animals, you know, all the way through the chain and, you know, be able to capture some of that value from people who want to know exactly where, you know, the animal came from. So. For sure. And so with that, and kind of a, a big part of all of this is telling our story as, mm -hmm. as an industry, as producers, We've had people on the podcast that have said, you know, this, our story is broken. We need to start from scratch. We've had others that say, you know what, we're on, we're on course towards something that, that could work, but nobody really has the same story when it comes to how should we share our story, which makes it a challenge, but also an opportunity. Yeah. What have you always talked to people about when it comes to sharing your story? So I think there, yeah there are different answers for different people because industries are or should be stratified. So, you know, you might have a more premium product, you know, your Serrano ham or something where you're telling a very different story than, you know, the commodity product. And so, so that's one way of differentiating it. Um, but also, you know, right now, transparency is something that's more important. And I know that in many, of the ag industries, you know, there's there's a bit of a concern about transparency being abused to make the industry look bad. Uh, but when I think about transparency, I think about transparency today as a little bit like food safety was 100 years ago. You mm. know, people cared about food safety back then because our food wasn't safe. And people care about transparency today because in lots of our lives, there isn't transparency. You know, a lot of industries are not transparent. But if you look forward 10 years, you know, most people think, oh, transparency is going to become more and more important, you know, over time. I don't think that's really true. I think 10 or 15 years from now, no consumer is really going to care about transparency at all. Inst today, transparency is the ceiling, what you're trying to achieve. And if you achieve it, you will get credit for it and may even get a premium. 10 or 15 years from now, transparency is the floor. Yeah. It's table stakes. If you're not transparent, you will be punished. So the question is, as an industry, you know, do you want to enhance your transparency and be credited for doing it or rewarded? Or do you want to be dragged into it and simply be punished for not doing it? 
And so, you know, it will probably eventually happen, but by the time it happens, nobody's going to care about it anymore. And I just Fair. give you one story, McDonald's, you know, they, uh, their executives were told that, you know, we really need to put all of our ingredients, you know, on the website. And they, they were very reluctant because they felt like there could be some consumer backlash to certain ingredients. They eventually did it. And then they complained because nobody visited that website. They're like, you know, we took all this trouble to be able to put this all up and nobody goes. And the communications guys are like, yeah, that's the point. You know, people just feel good knowing they could visit the site. Yeah. And they don't need to do it anymore. So they were like, you know, protesting and now they just don't care. And so, you know, that's not getting exactly to your story point, but I feel like, you know, some people will tell their story well and they will get a premium for their product, whether it's at the farm level or the company level or other things. Um, but I think, you know, we need to recognize that consumers more and more want to have a relationship, not just with, you know, a, a nameless or faceless company, but with individual producers. And I see that as an opportunity mm -hmm. uh, because, you know, people that are in farming are in it for amazingly good reasons. You know, they, they believe in it, they're passionate about it, they care about the land, they care about their family all the underlying values are things that their consumer can get. Yeah, I think sometimes the consumer doesn't recognize that a lot of these producers, these farmers, they could be excelling in other industries in incredible ways because they are brilliant individuals. And in some ways they are sacrificing elements of what they could have because they love what they do so much. Right. They are willing to go into an industry where there are unpredictable aspects that just are far beyond the risk factors that what other industries face so high stress high reward the reward for them is they get to do what they love and they get to pass it from generation to generation and i think that that story is 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 very is, is incredible when you get to hear it from them um to kind of wrap things up uh one I'd, I'd like for you to share something unique about yourself that most people don't know something that you might like to do in your free time and then a golden nugget, uh, something you've learned in your life that you'd like to give back to the audience. Oh, let's see. Well, the, the latest and greatest is we just put a pool table in our, our basement today. We, we found this old 1960s pool table sitting in somebody's garage that they wanted to get rid of. And so we found some people to move it to our house. So they, they gave it away to get it out. We had this like, <laughs> thousand pounds, you know, solid slate. Uh, so somebody's in DC, come on over and play a game of pool. There you go. Um, so in terms of, you know, nuggets, what, what really got me when I was at the State Department is that I realized that science wasn't convincing anybody of anything. It was like this real aha moment because I love science. And, you know, that science at the beginning of the conversation was simply polarizing the audience. Those who agreed with me agreed more, but those who disagreed actually disagreed with me more. And so I had to realize that you need to start with trust and build your relationship with the, with the person you're talking to. And at the moment of trust, science often just doesn't matter anymore. Mm. Because if you trust me, you don't really need transparency into my operation because you trust that I'm going to take care of your family just like I would take care of my family. Mm -hmm. So, so many of the things. And so that really changed a lot of even how I present the information that I do. I just reorganized it, ripped out all of the charts and other things and um, tried to connect with people on the values that we care about 
before I got into some of the, you know, the science and technology and things that they needed to learn about, but they needed to understand me first. Well, thank you for sharing that. And we really appreciate having you as a guest on the podcast. And thank you. Thank you so much for taking the time to connect with all of us. Thank you. It was great talking to you. Hope to see you again soon. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Popular Pig. We aspire to learn and grow together through the experience and wisdom shared by our esteemed guests. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with your friends and colleagues within the swine industry. For more information, please go to popularpig.com to receive updates when new episodes are available. Popular Pig is brought to you by SwineTech, the award-winning creators of SmartGuard and PigFlow. To learn how PigFlow can help you streamline your workforce and reduce piglet and sow deaths, visit swinetechnologies.com. Thank you.